Um, if you are a guest, again, we do welcome you. Uh, we're thankful to have you. Uh, we uh, commonly walk through books of the Bible verse by verse, and we're now in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10 uh, in the New Testament. So if you'd like to join us and you have a Bible, we will be in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, and we will go from verse 23 into chapter 11, verse 1 this morning. The title of my sermon is, Do All to the Glory of God. And the key words uh, for our children uh, worshipers in training are liberty, conscience, and glory. First uh, Corinthians chapter ten, uh, verse twenty-three through eleven, one. And uh, before we read, just sort of um, want to uh, outline exactly who Paul is writing to as a reminder for us, and what is going on in the church at Corinth, because that really is going to play into uh, what he is doing here in this passage. And remember, Corinth was a, a very young church at this time. They were new converts to Christianity. They had a lot of things going on around them. They were probably very cool people, uh, very immature in the faith. They did a lot of stupid things and they had a lot of questions. They had a lot of questions uh, for how things were going to be worked out in this new life as Christians. They were in the middle of a city that was surrounded with idol worship. They were surrounded by uh, sexual immorality as a result of this idol worship. Uh, there was uh, promiscuity and immorality everywhere. Uh, the people in the city were promoting uh, homosexual lifestyles, uh, getting drunk all the time, probably doing drugs. All of these things going on all around them as they are seeking to be faithful to the gospel, to be the church in the midst of this city. And as I say these things, I can't help but think that the city of Corinth compares to pretty much every city in America. <laughs> and yes, that includes Rincon. As, uh, as much as we want to think uh, that we are in a uh, wonderful bedrock community that is not influenced by these things, we certainly are. Uh, this describes us well. So Paul's response to the Corinthians in the midst of all of this is that they are to love the city. Because Christianity, the message of the gospel, is good for the city. It is good for these people to know the gospel and to see the gospel being worked out. And to see in their lives that the gospel is active and is transforming and so they're beginning to realize that to be believers in this environment is a very awkward thing, right? It's awkward to be a Christian in that environment. And I'm not just talking about saying we're Christians. I'm not just talking about professing to be believers. But being Christians with our time and with our money and with the way that we parent, and the way that we do marriage, and the way that we look at things in our lives, like the clothes we wear, and the work that we do, and how we go about it. And sometimes we'll do the same things that are going on in the culture around us, but we'll do them for very different reasons. And it will look very Different. So we might uh, recycle and eat organic food and plant trees, okay? But we're not doing that because we think that um, because I recycle, I'm going to heaven, okay? Um, we do that uh, for redemptive purposes, to love God's creation. So we can do the same things that go on in the world around us for very different reasons. And that sometimes can be very awkward. Because there are not too many people in cities like ours, in cities in our country especially, and certainly cities throughout the world that are really into the real Jesus. So that is Paul's focus as we look here, as he speaks to, uh, as he writes to the Corinthians and what he is instructing them. How do you do this? How can you be a Christian who loves the city, who loves God, and yet simultaneously disagrees with people because of the way that they are living out their lives in idolatry? 
How can we disagree very strongly about very important things? Things that are of eternal significance. How do we do Acts 1.8 when God tells the church, you will be my witnesses. You will go to the uttermost parts of the earth, but you will begin in the city where you are. How do we do that? How are we as a people, how are we instructed to be good missionaries uh, in the city of Rincon? To be a people who are going to our neighbors or across the fence in the backyard and being missionaries to a people who are not necessarily like us. And they look like us and they talk funny like us, but they're not like us if they're not believers in Christ because the Bible is abundantly clear that we are not of this world. We are aliens. We are travelers passing through on our way to the celestial city. So how do we do that? How do we see ourselves as a sent people who are on mission to serve the world for the glory of God? How am I to be a Christian in Rincon, Georgia? How do I deal with certain situations that I come up against Conflict in the workplace or with my next door neighbor? Or how should I think about certain things? How should I think about the clothing I wear or the music I listen to or the hobbies I partake in or the stores I shop at? How do all of those things get worked out in my life? How should I think of those things in terms of the gospel's relationship to them? I think that's where Paul has been going all along as he has written to the church at Corinth and as they have struggled through many of these issues. Paul is writing to people in very, very similar surroundings as us. Uh, And he has given them principles to guide them in wisdom that they might make godly decisions. So let's read together in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whatever you eat... So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not, I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So Paul begins here with a sort of summary or a sort of recap of what we've heard several times already as we've walked through uh, this book. Uh, he reminds the Corinthians of what he has been saying all along about their liberties. So he talks about is something lawful? Is it helpful? Is it loving? Is it for the good of my neighbors or is it for the good of others? And they were writing to Paul, and in writing to Paul, we see in uh, in quotation marks there that they were saying to him, all things are lawful. We are free in Christ, so we can do whatever we want. We are saved, therefore, as Christians, we're free and can do whatever. It does not matter. And Paul has said to them all along as we've looked at, he said, no, hold on, slow up a minute. There's a few questions that we have to ask of every situation, of everything that we encounter as believers. So let's look at those questions that we must ask. And much of this is in summary of what Paul has been saying all along. And and here he brings it all together at the end of his discussion on Christian liberty. First of all, is it lawful? 
They were saying all things are lawful, but it is important and it is a good and right question to ask of something, is it lawful? So this is a good question, and it's not wrong, but it's not the only question. Right? Should I do whatever? Should I drink this? Should I eat Big Macs? Should I watch sports on my big TV? Okay, should I do these things? In other words, the question is, is it lawful for me to do this? That is a good and right question. And so what we have to do is go to the Scriptures and say, does, and ask, does God say, do not do this? And that answers one side of it, right? If God says, do not do this, then we don't do that. Seems fairly simple, right? And the question is, is not is this lawful in the world, but is this lawful in the eyes of God? Because there's many things that are perfectly legal in the world that, according to God, are abominations, correct? Uh, children will not be put in prison for not obeying their parents. Spouses will not be arrested for committing adultery. You will not be brought to the penitentiary for gossip. So sometimes there are things in the Scriptures, in God's law, that bring us to a level of obedience beyond what our culture has commanded. And sometimes these are hand in hand, right? Certainly at the level of what our culture, uh, what, our, um, what our authority over us has commanded, right? We are commanded to do, uh, to do certain things in obedience to the authorities appointed over us. That includes our government. So if, uh, if one decides they're going to get drunk and drive, they cannot be pulled over and say, Officer, it's okay, I'm free in Christ. It doesn't work. Okay, it's the same as a child disobeying their parents and saying, Mom, Dad, I'm not really concerned about what you say because I'm free in Christ. At which point a good parent will respond, I will now free you up to tell Jesus you wish you never said that. Okay, so there are ways, there are times, there are reasons why we don't just simply say, well, I'm free, it's, it's lawful, I can do this. We're not simply looking at the laws of the land, we are looking at God's law. Because saying things like that are not free in Christ. They're gullible and naive and foolish. We are called to obey the authorities appointed over us. That's in our jobs, that's in our government, that's in our homes, that's in our church, that's in our schools. The question is, am I breaking God's law? In other words, is what I'm doing permissible? That is a good and right question, but it doesn't stop there. That's where the Corinthians were stopping by and large. But it does not stop there. But that does eliminate a lot of things, right? And look, we're not being moralistic here. But simply looking at the fact that some things are clearly sin. There's no gray area in sin. It is not liberty to do certain things. Can I get drunk? No. Can I be addicted to drugs? No. Can I be a glutton? No. Can I do this or that? Can I listen to country music? No. Okay, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> do not participate in evil. Light has no fellowship with darkness. So there are certain things that we must ask, is it permissible? No, therefore I refrain. But the second thing we must look at, some things are lawful, some things are permissible, but they're not necessarily helpful or beneficial. Shall I hang out with those friends? Is it permissible? Yes. Is it beneficial? Maybe not. Shall I drink that drink or eat that food or watch that TV show or movie? Are these things beneficial? Not all things are helpful, Paul says. Not all things build up. 
It might be permissible, but it may not be constructive. And this is the difference between something that is a a sin issue versus something that is a wisdom issue. And this is where things get very difficult as believers. So let me give you a, a more obvious example. And then maybe as you think through things in your own life, you can boil it down from here because it gets a lot more muddy from here. Uh, so, uh, dudes, if your wife is out of town and you and your wife have a good friend who happens to be a female and your motives are maybe 100% pure, it is not wise to go out to dinner with her and hang out with her while your wife is not around. Is it sinful? No, not necessarily. But is it wise? Absolutely not. Not in any way, shape or form. So it's not beneficial and it's not helpful for you or anybody else who observes that. It is simply not wise. Is it sinful to eat a Big Mac and a large fry? No. But should I do it every single day? No. That's not wise. Okay, so we can deal with some very practical questions as we look at this issue of whether or not something is permissible and whether or not something is beneficial. Look, we're not going to do church discipline if you're a Big Mac attack guy. But if that is what you do every single day in love, we're going to come to you and say, brother, is that wise? Is that wise for you or anyone else? Okay, there are things that will play out in our lives that we can look at and say, you know, I can't go to the scriptures and say this is clearly sin. But I can say that it is very unwise. Please consider that. So Paul is appealing to them to consider wisdom. Third, he asks, is it loving? Is something loving? Look at verse 24. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. That is love. And this is not an American virtue. Love, selflessness, kindness. These are not American virtues. Usually, we are inundated from the very beginning of our life with this mindset of what do you want? What's best for you? What's best for your self-esteem? But the Bible is calling us to be very countercultural here, right? Not only asking, is this lawful, is this permissible, is this wise, but now I also have to factor in other people here. Is this loving? And I have to think about my friends and my family and my coworkers and my neighbors. What will they think? Is this a loving thing to do? Whatever it is. It can be very simple, it can be very complex. But whatever it is, we must ask those questions. Lawful? Yes. Okay. Wise? Sure. Maybe. Loving? Maybe not. Okay, so I am free to crank up my table saw in the garage at midnight. Am I loving my neighbors? Uh, I am free to uh, turn my stereo as loud as it will go in an apartment. But am I loving my neighbors? Okay, so we must ask that question of all things. Am I loving these people? In my liberty, am I taking them to the extent where I just run roughshod over everyone else because I am serving myself? We're called to love others because God first loved us. And Paul goes on in verse 25 and 26. He writes, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And that is a quote from Psalm 24, 1. Now, historically in the church, Christians have tried to make this major divide between things that are sacred and things that are secular. We've tried to put them in two different camps and look at every, everything we do, everything we see and say, that's sacred, that's secular. So we look at music and movies and t-shirts and coffee mugs and uh, hangout spots and literature, just cultural things in general and look at them and say, is that sacred or is that secular? But the Bible doesn't do that. 
Paul says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. All things are under the supremacy of Christ's reign. So there's not this major difference that we draw as we look out on the cultural landscape and say, that is Christian, that is not, that's sacred, that's secular. We look at these things and say, God is working to redeem all things, all things back to Himself. It is all under the reign of Christ. So all music, all people, all food and tribes and nations and books and political systems and movies are under the sovereign reign of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean all of these things are obedient to Christ. It doesn't mean all of these things are glorifying Christ or that they're good or godly but it means that He is sovereign over them. It does mean that we as a people who are sent out as agents of reconciliation can be at work to redeem culture in a way that honors Christ. Right? We've all, we've all experienced that recently in outreach that we've done. Do you, maybe many of you don't know what is going on in our country in terms of redemption happening in the hip-hop music industry. We saw it. We've been a part of it because of our outreach. But by and large, uh, this thing is bigger than uh, what happened here in Rinkin and what's going on in Savannah. It's huge. And people in parts of our country, in culture, uh, in cultures and in uh, parts of the city that Christians have by and large, ignored and sought to come away from are being affected by the Gospel because faithful men are redeeming something that went so terribly wrong. So instead of being about drugs and gangs and money and what I have and what I do and who I am, they've taken this form of music and turned it to, this is who Christ is. This is what Christ does. This is why He calls us to repent and believe the Gospel. And using that means to bring the message to those, becoming all things to all men that we might win some. They are redeeming culture. They are taking things that have gone horribly wrong and bringing them back to reconciliation. So it is good and right for us to enjoy God's gifts, to enjoy God's provision, to rightly engage in culture and in what God has provided to us. And that means music and food and sex and alcohol and work and hobbies and literature. All of these things can be enjoyed by God's people in non-sinful ways. That show our thankfulness for His goodness and display His worth as greater than all else. But we must ask those questions. Is it lawful? Is it beneficial? Is it loving? So Paul is writing to Corinthians who are concerned about the meat market. Because we've looked at this several times now. Remember, they were saying, okay, maybe some of us shouldn't eat this meat because it was sacrificed to idols. And and Paul said all along, it's not a big deal. It's it's nothing. Okay, the idol that it was sacrificed to was, was nothing. So don't worry about that. Don't let your conscience be grieved by that. You're not going to choke and die on that piece of meat because it was offered to an idol. Okay, so likewise for us, we need to ask those questions. Should I go to that concert? Should I play on that softball team? Should I go to the neighborhood barbecue? Should I hang out at the community pool? Those aren't necessarily Christian environments as I want to label them. Well, is it permissible? Is it lawful? Is it beneficial? Is it loving? Is this being a good friend or a good neighbor? If so, go for it. Maybe this might be the very thing that you should do or need to do. 
How so? Verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. So, this may very well be a means by which we bring Jesus to the people. So that's another question that we must ask in all of this is, is this evangelistic? Does this have a gospel purpose behind it? Non-Christians will base much of what they do and do not think of Jesus on how we respond to these questions that we are asking in the decisions that we make. So we are able to be very practical today because there's a lot of application here for us. Because this is Paul's summary of all these chapters from 8 through 11. So the Corinthians, they had non-believing friends, they invite them over for dinner, and Paul is saying, don't ask this question when they put meat before you. Don't ask them, was this offered to idols? Because it's not necessary. It doesn't matter. Because their idol is nothing. It's a piece of wood, or it's a piece of metal, or it's a piece of clay. It doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. And it's incredibly rude. So go ahead and eat whatever is before you. It's okay. And you can see by how many times Paul addressed it in, in, this, uh, in these last few chapters that this meat issue was a huge hot-button issue for the Corinthians. They must have been discussing this amongst themselves and trying to come to a conclusion. So we look at their situation and we can ask uh, some questions of this. Is it good for them to have non-Christian friends? Yes. Is it okay to spend time with them? Yes. Jesus did, right? Why was Jesus accused of being a drunkard or a sinner? Because He hung out with those people. So... We, we get the idea from the Gospels as we look at the life of Jesus that He was someone to a certain extent that people wanted to be around, right? He was invited to parties. He was invited over to people's homes for dinner. He was not, uh, he was not well liked by the religious people. But He was liked and the, the ones who wanted to be around Him were the ruffians of society. The ones that the religious people looked down on. The people that the religious hypocrites hated. So it is okay and good and right that the Corinthians would be engaging these people in their community and spending time with them. But again, in all of this, asking these questions of liberty. But how all of this plays out is on a case-by-case basis, right? I, I can't give you a definitive yay or nay on a lot of these things. And this is what makes liberty so difficult because it's a lot easier to run into the sinful ditches of legalism or license. And they're very, very attractive things to fall off into. But they're lazy cop-outs. They are lazy cop-outs. So, legalism says that Life is easier when I simply have a list of do's and don'ts. I do these things, I don't do these things, and as long as I have that, no problem. There is no gray area, and entire denominations of Christianity are found on this very idea. So I don't want to be around sinners because I might catch it. Or all the music I listen to must mention Jesus at least five times. I will not watch rated R movies unless they're about Jesus being crucified. All my t-shirts and coffee mugs have to say something along the lines of, I heart Jesus. I won't go to restaurants with bars in them. I won't do sports with my children unless they're at the church against another church and they don't keep score. Okay, all this seems easy, right? We can legalistically put all of these requirements on life. But legalism is the seedbed for unbelief and rebellion. Because it's a yoke of slavery of man-made laws that God never intended. 
When someone sought to put a man-made law on the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, his response was, God gave us ten commandments of which I have a difficult enough time keeping. I dare not add number 11 or 12. Legalism is a ditch of sinfulness, and we must avoid it at all costs. Likewise, the opposite end of the spectrum is license. This is when we simply say, I'm under grace, I'm not under the law, therefore I will do whatever I want. No big deal. Get drunk, so what? Have multiple sex partners, no big deal. Allow and engage in or be a part of homosexual unions, not a problem. Because God loves everyone and God forgives everyone in the end. So eat, drink, and be merry because you only live once. Okay, so these two extremes, one bludgeons us with man-made laws and the other disregards the law of God altogether. But the Bible teaches something altogether different. The Bible calls us to the gospel way. To recognize that we as a people are unable to keep God's law because if left to ourselves, we would find ways to justify our sin and manipulate the law for our own personal gain. So in that, we must remind ourselves that Jesus kept the law perfectly on my behalf. And so what is the result? The result is that I am free in Christ not to go and do as I please, not to put a yoke of man-made laws on myself, but I am free in Christ to obey God's law. And now because Christ has kept it, I am free to be thankful for them, to be wise in my interactions, and to use the opportunity to honor Christ in how I go about my life because He has accomplished perfect obedience for me. And He gives me wisdom and discernment to walk in the gray areas and to honor Christ. And as we work this out in the world, we will find times that what we are called to do and be as Christians is very popular. And at other times, it is very unpopular. Christians need not see ourselves aligning in certain camps that our culture has established. It's not that Christians simply belong to one political party and whatever that is, that's the course we run on. Because we're going to do things that people who align with those who are politically conservative will be very attracted to. But we're also called to do things that those who align politically liberally will be very attracted to. And it depends on the culture we're in and how we're working that out. So those who are very conservative in certain parts of our country alone will very much align with Christian sex ethics or the moral, the moral nature that, of what the law drives us to. But they won't understand in many ways why we are focused on serving those who are homeless and poor and without, the orphans and the widows and why we give without asking, and why we expect nothing in return. So there is a crossover here. We must find that place in the middle where we say we are Christians and we live for the glory of the gospel, not dictated by what the cultural norms are. So Paul is saying to them, if a non-believer invites you over for dinner and you want to go, then go. And be thankful for them. Be wise in your interaction and use that opportunity to honor Christ in how you use God's gift and talk about your life and you talk about your worldview. Now, he brings up another issue though. If you do go, you must have a concern for the good of conscience. Look at verse 28. If someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat of it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my, conscience, my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I gave thanks? 
So if you sit down at the table of an unbeliever and they say this meat was offered in idol sacrifice, Paul says we respond, okay, no, thank you. No, thank you. Why? Why is that? Because he just said it was okay because that idol was nothing. And he's saying, yes, for you, that idol they sacrifice that to is nothing. And truly for God, that idol is nothing. But for them, that idol is everything. For them, that idol is something that they are worshiping. So the concern is not yourself, right? He says that. The concern is not for himself, He says, look, it's not about my liberty of conscience. I'm cool to eat this meat, but for the sake of the unbeliever or for the sake of a brother who may have had former associations with such an idol, I must abstain at this point because you have made it known. And so the situation has turned from a simple meal all of a sudden to idolatry. It's no longer about meat. It's about heaven and hell. So he calls us to be very flexible. If a non-believer invites us over for dinner, then great. Eat what they prepare with glad and thankful hearts. Engage in conversation. Answer questions. Be honest about life. Be honest about our faith. Take opportunities to speak truth into their lives. But if before the meal they say, hey, we're going to join hands and we're going to pray to the extraterrestrials to grant world peace by putting power in our hearts through the energy supplied from the earth that's been suppressed by political strongholds that keep us from progress. And if you were here last week, you know what I'm talking about. That's when you say, no, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't do that. I won't do that. I will not participate in that. And that's when who we are and what we do becomes very unpopular. And so they may say, oh, well, you're one of those intolerant, narrow-minded Christians. And we can simply say, no, I'm just asking you to accommodate me so you're not a hypocrite. I'm giving you an opportunity to be consistent with your worldview. And so we honor Christ as we step back and say, I will engage in relationship with you. I will share with you. I will invest my life in yours, but as soon as you're asking me to walk into something contrary to what God has commanded, I'm out. So Paul is saying, go, be out bringing Jesus to people, but do not engage in idolatry. Do not cause others to stumble. Do not give reason for others to think that your allegiance is to anyone or anything other than Christ. And this is very, very difficult. How do we say, I love you, but I disagree so strongly with your worldview and your lifestyle? This is a difficult thing. And sometimes we love and we serve and we hang out with and we enjoy, unlike legalists, but we stand on truth and create a divide unlike those who live in license. We find the middle ground of the gospel So how do we love and simultaneously disagree with people who do not know Christ? How can we befriend others without affirming their lifestyle and engage in our culture without involving ourselves in their spiritual practices? This is a very, very complicated yet very necessary question to consider. Again, we must start with these questions that Paul has been outlining all along. Is it lawful? Is it beneficial? Is it loving? And is it evangelistic? How will non-Christians perceive this? Will I be showing truth and love simultaneously? We'll get back to verse 31 in just a minute. Look at verse 32. Give no offense to Jew or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything. I do not seek I, 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 do, I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Are you looking out for others? How is what I am engaging in helping or hindering others? Is this helping people meet, love, follow, worship, and serve Jesus? 
People who are on mission, missionary people are always asking these questions like Paul. I am not seeking my own advantage. I'm seeking the good of others. I'm always living in a way to make this reality known in my hobbies, in my work, in my shopping, in whatever I do. Am I looking out for others? And then he is so confident in what he is able to accomplish. In verse 1 of chapter 11, he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is a very important question that we must ask. Can you say that? Are you striving with Jesus in a way that you can look at those whom you pour your life into, at those whom you disciple and say, imitate me in these things? If not, why? We ought to be able to look at others and say, imitate me because I imitate Christ. You don't know what it looks like to be faithful to Christ in these areas of your life? No problem. Imitate me. But I sin is maybe what you're thinking. I'm a sinner still. Yeah, yeah, you are. But in that, you can also model humility and repentance. Because, not because you're worthy of being imitated, but because you imitate Christ. So watch me live and serve as a missionary in this city and imitate me. Follow my example. And so we take all of these things together. We covered a lot of ground this morning. How do they all come together? Verse 31. So whatever you, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So how do we do this thing? How do we live on mission? We keep looking to Jesus. Did Jesus have some bad friends? Yeah. He, he still does, right? Look at us. What did we come out of? But He has loved us and given us new eyes to see so that no matter what we strive to do, we can do it with a desire to glorify Him. And this is tough though. This seems very abstract, right? In everything you eat and drink, everything you do, do it to God's glory. And we've all been there, right? I'm not sure what to do in this situation. And someone says, well, brother, you just got to glorify God. Well, thank you so much. But what exactly does that mean? How do I do that? What does that look like? How do I glorify God with my diet Sprite or my fried chicken or playing softball or doing work at my job or shopping at Kroger? Notice no S on the end of it. Walmart, no S. Sonic, no S. Okay. Um, how do I glorify God in these things? Well, quite simply, up front, we must say, without Jesus, we don't. All actions apart from the saving grace of God are morally ruined. They are useless in terms of glorifying God. So first, we must look to Jesus as our pattern of perfection to follow and model that others can see us and imitate the very same. If we don't look to Jesus, we don't glorify God. Because Jesus is not simply all that we need. Jesus is all that we have. And to glorify God looks like a large cut diamond that we hold in the bright summer sun and it reflects the rays everywhere. I'm not making the sun brighter. I'm not making the sun hotter than it is or shinier than it is. I'm simply refracting that light that is hitting that prism in multiple directions. And very much the same, my light should shine. I should be a cut diamond in the sun refracting the glory of God. So man was made to glorify God like birds were made to fly and fish were made to swim. And all of life, every bit of my life is for Him. I'm called to eat and breathe and walk and sleep and work and live for Him. It is my only purpose in life. It is the only thing with meaning in this life. Even if He sends you to hell, 
Repent and serve Jesus and worship because He is worthy. Do you have an understanding of that kind of Christianity in your life? Do you have a place in your life that says, even if God didn't love me, and thanks be to Him that He does, He is worthy of my worship. Whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, Paul says. He could have made a list a thousand pages long. Whatever you do means everything in life is an opportunity to glorify God. Every circumstance is an opportunity to praise God. So we're still on that question, how? And the key to this is what, or rather whom, we seek our joy in. Those who cry the loudest about wanting to enjoy life the most without Christ have the most miserable existence. Why? Because nothing else outside of Jesus satisfies ultimately. No one with terminal cancer says, I wish I would have worked more hours and made more money because I'd be so much more satisfied now. And so we seek satisfaction in money and success and sex and fame and power, but all of these are lame, pathetic cop-outs and they sell us very, very short of ultimate joy. Our goal should be joy. But joy is not in our health and in our wealth. It is in God Himself. But we as a people are fickle. We settle for lesser things, like Esau trading in his birthright for a bowl of porridge. Do you seek joy in a new car? or in your spouse, or in your children, or in a promotion, or in a better golf score, or a bigger television. Look, none of these things are bad to want or to have, but they are so far short of God's greatness. Why put your joy and satisfaction in these things? Are you tracking with me here? So what does all of this have to do with loving our city and being missionaries to a people around us. It has everything to do with that. Because everything else in our culture is saying, find your joy in this. Find your joy in beauty. Find your joy in success. Find your joy in fame and Hollywood. And eventually, when people seek their joy in these things, it disappoints. And we're saying to our culture, find your joy in who Christ is and what He has accomplished. And when you suffer, there will be gladness. And when things are amazing, there will be gladness. And when your house collapses on you and your family dies and you are left alone, there will be gladness. Because our satisfaction is not in the circumstances that surround us, but in Christ who is and was and who forever will be. And the world looks at this and says, that is very odd. That is strange. That is different. What is wrong with you? And you know what? This is what is attractive about Christ. Because God placed in our hearts a desire to seek joy. The problem is that even most Christians seek their joy elsewhere. Everyone everywhere is pursuing joy in something, but very few people are seeking God's glory. It's sad. But when God's people get a hold of that, it becomes incredibly attractive and Jesus is honored. God is glorified. So how do we eat and drink and do all things to the glory of God? We find our satisfaction in Christ. We place our joy in Christ. So I'm going to pray for us. Let's repent of weak desires so that we can glorify God and love the people of the world rightly together. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your instruction. 
We thank You that You give us direction, O Lord. That You don't simply tell us and command us to glorify You because You are worthy and yet give us no direction on how to get there. Lord, help us to have hearts of joy in Christ. Give us greater desires for Christ, Father. Give us hearts of repentance when we seek our satisfaction in things other than Christ and people other than Christ. Father, remind us of what Christ has accomplished for us, that we would delight in the glory of the gospel. Help us to glorify you, Lord. Help us to love our neighbors. Help us to love the people of this world. Help us to be good missionaries to our city and to love our city, to love these people with the gospel. May it never be said of us that we are legalists. May it never be said of us that we are living fully in license and paying no attention to the law of God. Help us to delight in Your law. Help us to delight in Your Word and to live in a way that honors and glorifies You. Lord, we repent for weak desires. And we ask, God, that in our weak desires that You would restore us. That You would renew within us a right spirit, a right heart, a right want to live for Your glory. We repent of addiction because it is in those things that we seek our joy. We repent knowing, Father, that we have sought to be delighted in things other than Christ. And we ask that You would give us greater longings to make much of Jesus. Forgive us, Lord. Restore us convict us and grant us joy in Christ that we might live to fulfill your great command to glorify and enjoy you forever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.